The reading of the scriptures this morning is from found on 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, we'll be reading from verses 22 to 53. Give heed to the word of the Lord. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed on their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your father's servant, my my, your father, your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act, and judge your servants condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, Because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven. And forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, When each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you 
as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of their enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with their, all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant, the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, join me as we pray for the Spirit's illumination upon the word. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have access to you through Christ, your Son, And we thank you, Lord, that you've sent your Spirit to open our eyes to see with eyes of faith the words of life, to see displayed before us the magnificent, marvelous wonders of our triune God. Send forth your Spirit to open eyes that are still blind, to enliven hearts that are dead, and to comfort those hearts that are weak and failing that you would stir up the faith of us all, that we may with joy this evening celebrate the wonders of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we come to the preaching of the Word, I wonder, have ever have any of you ever known someone who's especially easy to talk to? Maybe a friend or your spouse conversations are easy and natural and they always seem to leave you refreshed or energized. And I wonder if you've ever had experience the opposite. You've ever spoken to someone who's a challenge to speak to, a boss or a coworker. You find that you too often talk past one another rather than towards each other. Many of us have, have, have had relationships that have gone from comfortable to strained. Conversations used to be encouraging, but now they are downright frustrating. And if I were to ask you, how is your conversational ability with your spouse, or with your parents, or with your children, how would you answer? Would you say, it's great, it's awful, it's confusing? Well, if I were to ask how your conversational ability with God is, what would you say? 
Now, when we come to the topic of prayer, the subject of our sermon, First Kings 8, we come to prayer. Prayer is conversing with God. Prayer is simultaneously this most important and often the most difficult act of Christian piety. For some of us, prayer is impossible because we frankly do not know how to talk to God. But for others, prayer is an enigma because we have the desire but feel we lack the ability to come and speak with our God. Now maybe for you, prayer is the best part of your day, while for others of you, prayer is just something you get to when you get to it. Now I once heard a young man ask me, why pray when God is sovereign? Or why pray when God is just going to do whatever it is He's going to do? How can something so visibly insignificant be called a vital part of Christian piety? Nothing, I contend, nothing reveals your relationship with God more acutely than your relationship with prayer. Our text today reveals Solomon's view of prayer. Our text follows the dedication of the temple of God. God made a promise to His people that He would dwell with them that he would place his name upon a particular place, and at that place, God would not only meet with his people, but would converse with them, would dwell in a particularly intimate way. Solomon gives a short dedication speech, declaring to the people of all that God has done, and we come to verse 22, as Solomon has seen the Shekinah glory, God's special particular presence manifest itself, come upon the temple, and we see Solomon praying. Solomon's prayer of dedication is a prayer that will echo throughout the rest of the Bible. And in fact, this may be the most important prayer uttered in the Old Testament. On the basis of this prayer, every king after Solomon is shown how he may turn back to God in the midst of sin and failure and judgment. Our passage teaches us many things, especially regarding this important practice of prayer. And what I'd like to focus on today is the God of the Covenant is the God who hears and forgives sinners through prayers. The God of the covenant is the God who hears and forgives sinners through prayers. We'll see that this God of the covenant is the object of Solomon's prayers, verses 22 to 30, that the God who hears and forgives sinners is the substance of Solomon's prayers, verses 31 to 53. So first look with me at verses 22 to 30, the God of the covenant as the object of Solomon's prayer. Now, as Solomon comes before the altar of the Lord, he stands before the temple, which would have been this three-tiered structure glimmering with gold and beauty. The the stonework, the woodwork would have been a a wonder to behold the beauty of this temple. Now, Solomon's not a priest, so he can't enter into the Holy of Holies, which is why he stands before the altar. Yet, as Israel's king, he is the covenant head of the nation. He dedicates the temple. That's his duty. So he dedicates the temple by spreading out his hands towards heaven. He has this posture of reverence. He comes to God in prayer knowing that he can only come to God because of that altar of sacrifice before him. He stands before the altar. Now, at the beginning of chapter 8, we read of Solomon sacrificing animals without number. That, he's, that there's this outpouring of sacrificial blood because Solomon recognizes that only an ocean of blood can atone for even one sin, and even then it's not enough. So we recognize that this is pointing us to the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, whose 
blood atoned for all of our sins. So Solomon sees as he comes to the Lord in prayer, he has to come through the sufficient sacrifice. And that's the same for us. We come through the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Without the sacrifice, Solomon cannot stand in God's glorious presence. So he approaches the God of the covenant rightly, and he opens with praise to this great God, 23 and 24. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants and walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as on this day. Solomon praises the unique God of the covenant. In all of creation between heaven and earth, there is no object of proper praise and prayer and worship than God. That's why we we don't pray to angels, nor saints, nor Mary. And that may seem obvious to us in the church. Of course, we don't pray to these people. There's no one like God. But have you considered that when you pray, you are approaching a being who measured the mountains, who directed and traces out the course of a lightning bolt, who knows to the very drop how much water is in the heavens or upon the earth? Do you come to prayer first marveling at the majesty of God, that you have no right to enter into the covenant presence of God, and yet, out of love and mercy in Christ, He welcomes you, He beckons you, He invites you, He delights to have you in His presence? And this alone would be enough for worship, wouldn't it? Yet the object of Solomon's prayer is the God of the covenant. Now in Hebrew, Solomon fronts the covenant name Yahweh. And this creates in that language an emphatic expression that the one whom Solomon addresses is the one who spoke to Adam, to Noah, to Moses, to Abraham, and to David. Solomon praises a God who has tenderly cared for his people through every trial and tribulation. And Solomon readily acknowledges that it was God who spoke the promise, and it was God who fulfilled it. And if it wasn't for Yahweh having mercy on his people, there would be no people of God. So Solomon approaches God with humble prayer, praising who God is and remembering what God has done. And this pattern of prayer presents to you a pattern to follow. Do you come to God in your daily prayers with a mere list of requests, and if God grants them, great, and if He doesn't, oh well? Or is the act of praising prayer sufficient? In other words, are prayers of adoration good enough? Would you be able to come into the presence of God and just say, you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, most holy, most wise, most kind, faithful, loving, just? Could you just praise God for five minutes in your prayers, ten minutes, an hour of praising, asking for nothing, knowing that all you deserve is wrath, yet God has lavished mercy upon you. So Solomon begins his prayer with praise. You know, it says something about God more so than it says about us that God uses our prayers to fulfill His will. He calls us to bring our petitions to Him, that He may lavish us with more grace and mercy. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Isn't that astounding that the God who gave us all things, who made promises and who fulfills them, gives for us this pattern of, Sol- uh, this pattern of Solomon, a pattern of praise and then petition. God gave us everything and then says, ask for more. It's like going... Imagine asking a bank, your bank coming to you. 
and offering you $100 million and then saying, when you've spent it all, ask for more. That's the lavishness of God's grace who gives us all things. So Solomon moves from praising this ever-gracious God to petitioning the God of the covenant. What does he first ask for? Well, we see first in verse 25 that Solomon merely asks God to fulfill what God said he would fulfill. Now, the promise Solomon is referencing is a promise God made to David, that there would always be a man sitting upon the throne of Israel. And God has fulfilled that promise to a lesser extent with Solomon and to the ultimate extent with Christ who presently sits upon the throne of David in glory. But then an interesting thing happens in the midst of Solomon petitioning God. He slips back into praise. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever asked God for something and then you remember who you're speaking to and you realize that you're talking to God who is in heaven and cannot be contained by his own creation? As Solomon is praying before the people of God, before the very temple he just built, in which the glory cloud of the Lord is upon them, he is overwhelmed. He marvels that this building cannot contain God. And he wonders, how is it possible that you condescend to even hear my prayer in this building? Yet Solomon continues and says, God, hear your servant. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you wonder, does God even hear me and my prayers? Little children, I wonder, do you think the God of the universe, the God who reveals his power in thunder and in hurricanes and lightning and tornadoes, does this God even give me a passing chance? Well, Solomon rests his petition that God said he will answer those who call upon his name. Solomon asks God, when you hear your people call upon your name, hear them, and when you hear, forgive Now we know in chapter 9 of this book that God answers, yes, I will answer anyone who calls upon my name. And little ones, if God the Father will hear and answer with an affirmative the prayers of Solomon, how much more will he answer the prayers of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on your behalf? Jesus, unlike Solomon, Solomon was just a king. Jesus Christ is our king and priest. He doesn't just bring our prayers together to the front of God's throne room. He brings it to the very throne itself. Dear ones, when you struggle in prayer, when you wonder, does God think me insignificant? Or when, in God's providence, the hardest thing you can do as a Christian is to get upon your knees and call out to the Lord, rest in this, that you have someone greater than Solomon praying for you. You have the eternal Son of God offering on your behalf this very petition. Hear them and forgive Solomon approaches the God of the covenant with humility, recognizing he comes to God through the blood of atonement, blood that appeases the wrath of God. Solomon offers praises to God based on the covenant promises and mercies of God, and Solomon petitions God based not on what Solomon has done, nor on what anyone in Israel has done. He petitions God because God is a God of the covenant who promises to hear and forgive sinners. Verses 31 to 53. Solomon presents a seven-fold petition. We don't have time to delve into each petition, but briefly we'll go through them. Solomon presents a seven-fold petition. Each petition records God's people turning from their sin during deserved judgment. They turn from their sin and turn towards God. They rest in the covenant name of God for their salvation. 
Have you ever found yourself wondering, how can I talk to God when I'm lost in my own sin or in my own folly or in despair? Come and hear God's word for you. The first petition Solomon brings to the Lord, verses 31 to 32, pertains to oath-keeping. Now kids, what in the world is an oath? An oath is when you ask God to witness the truthfulness of something. It was a common practice uh, to adjudicate the truthfulness of an accusation before the temple. Solomon goes to the God of truth and asks, This God uphold the truth. And perhaps you've received false accusations in your life, or maybe you've yourself been the false accuser. If you are the former and have had been on the receiving end of false accusations or defamatory language, remember that God hears you, and God will judge your case rightly. He is not swayed by public opinion or the views of any human person. Conversely, if you yourself are a false accuser, and what I mean by that is that you bring an accusation that's not true, take heed and remember that God sees you, and He knows you, and He will bring upon you what you sought to bring on someone else. This is a petition we ourselves can bring before the Lord when we consider our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are often thrown in prison on false charges simply for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. We can pray on their behalf that the God of truth and justice would bring truth to light and justice upon the wicked. Solomon then goes on to his second petition, verses 33 and 34. God hears the defeated. Now Solomon is praying as a king with a particular mind towards his successors. And one of the most challenging aspects of being a civil magistrate, both in the ancient world and today, is defeat in war. Solomon is petitioning the Lord, perhaps in recognition of his own sinful faults. He comes to the Lord and says, Lord, when your people are defeated because they have sinned, because they've rested in chariots and not in the hand of God, when they have been defeated and are at the mercy of their enemies, hear them. When we consider how this petition applies to us today, There are many times in the history of the church when God has allowed his church to be beaten, though never crushed. You think of the Protestant Reformation and how many martyrs were made, yet God's church survived and persisted. Pray, dear ones, that God would preserve the witness of our church. Pray that he would, even though we seem to be on the back foot, culturally speaking, we know and rest that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, certainly not the United States government or any culture here. So we pray for revival. The Lord would send help to His people. God hears oaths, He hears the defeated, and He hears those in drought. We come to verse 35 and 36. These verses present Solomon's third petition which references what God does, what God's people are to do during a drought. Not just any drought, a drought that has been brought about by God because of the disobedience of His people. Now, we live in a time and in a place where there is an abundance of water and resources, particularly here on the East Coast. And speaking for myself and God's kindness, I've never lacked any food or water in my life. A drought has just been a headline to me, not a reality. But for Israel, these Israelites who were mostly farmers, a drought was the equivalent of a long death sentence. Now we must be careful when applying this text to our own day. We can't with certainty connect a particular drought or ecological disaster with a particular sin or judgment of God because we do not have a prophet declaring infallibly such. But we can say 
that every drop comes from God, because God controls to the drop of water how much water descends from the clouds upon the earth. And we can say that God does judge nations. So armed with these two facts, our prayers should be dedicated to God that he would continue to send rain on his good creation. That he would cause his good world to produce good fruit, not only for his people, but for the common grace of mankind. We should be thankful that God has spared our nation widespread starvation despite the drought in the western part of our country and despite our nation's many, many sins. Perhaps this week in family worship, parents, consider lifting up for the Christian farmers in Karamoja, Uganda. This is a mission work of the OPC there, and and many resources go to the diaconal training of farmers there. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send rain upon Uganda, and even more so that he would send his Holy Spirit to be poured out upon that nation. Solomon then moves to his fourth petition, verses 37 to 40. When there is famine in the land, pestilence, blight, or mildew, locusts, or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. This fourth petition, when we consider these general distresses of of famine, pestilence, and plague, this brings to my mind Revelation-esque judgments. This is the time of incredible distress upon the earth, amongst God's people in particular. That even in the midst of these grievous judgments upon the land, or when things seem especially dark, we as God's people are called to pray to the Lord for mercy. We must not ever give in to despair. Nor must we think that just because a nation or a particular person or perhaps you yourself are under God's judgment, we must never think that God's mercy is far away. Look at verse 40, 38. Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, spreads out his hands towards this temple. Brothers and sisters, God has mercy in the midst of calamity. He, bring, uh, he has mercy in the midst of calamity. He brings because of your own sin. If you ever find yourself saying, I deserve this judgment, and then just sit in your sin and in pity, I urge you, repent of your sin and turn towards God and seek His mercy. Our God is a God of truth amidst lies, a God of peace amidst warfare, a God of bounty amidst drought, a God of comfort in every distress. But one of the most remarkable features of our gracious God is his concern for those who do not know him. We find that in verses 41 to 43. Isn't it interesting that Solomon includes foreigners in his prayer for the dedication of the temple of Israel's God? Solomon has at least two assumptions. The first, Israel will be a light to the nations, fulfilling uh, the promise made to Abraham that your name would be a blessing, would be a light to the nations. The people of God will live and act in such a way that foreigners will hear of not just them, but of their God. This means that the very nature of God's people in both the Old Testament and in the New is evangelistic. Worship is for the people of God to meet with God, but it is also the great witness and declaration to a rebellious and dead world to come and worship the true and living God. 
So Solomon's first assumption is that God's people will be by nature evangelistic. His second assumption is that God will accept them. Because God's desire is for all the peoples of the earth to know his name and to fear him. Dear brothers and sisters, do you live a life that declares to the world whose kingdom you belong to? And I've traveled to several parts of the world, and usually before I open my mouth, everyone knows I'm an American. And I look and act like the country I'm from. And the world knows I'm an American. But would the world, outside world know by how I look and act and live that I am a Christian? Now Solomon's answer to that question is yes. Dear friends, maybe you're here and you're, you yourself are a foreigner. Not from a country that isn't the United States, but from a country that isn't the kingdom of God. And you hear about this God who answers prayer, who judges sin, who delights in mercy, and maybe you wonder, can I really know this God? Well, take heart that if you call upon the name of this Lord, the covenant God of the Bible, He will not only hear you, but He will send His Spirit to give you newness of life. The glory of God and His gracious mercy extends further to Solomon's sixth petition concerning soldiers in battle. More narrowly, this is verses 44 to 45, more narrowly we can observe, obviously recognize, that God had a particular care and concern for the protection of the nation-state of Israel before that nation's eventual destruction by the Babylonians. This petition recognizes that the ultimate safety of God's people is not in her weapons or in her martial prowess. Rather, it is in God who defends her. Now, this doesn't mean Christians are called to be pure pacifists. Notice verse 44, that the people are going out to battle. There is this recognition that God uses means to accomplish His ends. And God will use the army of Israel to accomplish Israel's defensive purposes, just like God will use the Babylonian army to judge the nation of Israel. When we consider how how we ought to apply this to our particular prayer life, Remember, firstly, that in all the affairs of our life, God is sovereign. From the Russian-Ukrainian war to acts of violence to the traffic you may hit to and from church, God is sovereign over all things. But secondly, our prayers must reflect that God uses means. He may not bless our labors in His kingdom, but He certainly will not bless what we do not pray for. Finally, our last petition is one of the most striking, heart-rending, and encouraging especially considering the rest of the history of God's people in the Old Testament. Solomon ends his sevenfold petition in verse 46. When they sin against you, there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemies. And they take them captive to the land of their enemy, far or near. Solomon ends the sevenfold petition with the tragic reminder that there is no one who does not sin. We were born in our trespasses and sins. We will live with the presence of sin until we die. But Solomon then continues by referencing God's anger towards sin. Solomon closes verse 46, reminding us what God does about the sins of his people. He disciplines them. Yet there is this glorious reality that when Christ died for our sins at the cross, he paid the full penalty for our sins. Yet God allows natural consequences of that sin to come upon his people because God wants his people to look like his son. Hebrews 12 reminds us that he disciplines the one whom he loves. But in verse 48, we see the response God's people have towards his discipline. 
They return to God with their whole heart and with their whole soul. And then we see God's wonderful response. God will forgive all their transgressions. He will be compassionate to them because God has set His loving seal upon His people. What was established in the election of His people in eternity has been progressively revealed as He spared Noah and as He saved Moses and the Israelites and as He preserved the line of kings is ultimately displayed in the redemptive work of Christ and its present application of that redemption by the Spirit of God. Now we sadly understand how necessary this petition was. God would punish His people with exile. And many years after the events of our text, a man named Daniel would be raised up by the Lord. He would be an Israelite raised in Babylonian captivity. And as Daniel is reflecting on God's Word in Daniel chapter 9, we read that he prays towards Jerusalem. He presents a confession of sin which mirrors 1 Kings 8. In a real sense, Daniel is praying this petition on behalf of God's people because Daniel knows that God is a God of mercy, even in the midst of God's judgments. What final lesson does this seventh petition teach us? It is never too late to call upon the name of the Lord. You could be here today in the midst of your sins, wondering in your heart of hearts, would God even forgive me? Or maybe you are a wayward covenant child who's been away in a far country and wonder if God's promises are still relevant to me. I can speak for myself and probably for many of us when we consider those who we know who are in the faith, who have wandered away, who have gone into their own self-imposed exile. We can ask the question, is it still worth praying for them? still worth praying for them? Is it still worth witnessing to them? Is it still worth it? Whether they're your parents, your siblings, or your children. Well, hear God's word. If he is willing and ready to receive his people back from exile, he is willing and ready to not only receive you back, but to receive those whom we love back. There is no sin that we can commit, or no sin that anyone can commit, that can sustain your soul, that can make it so black that it cannot be cleansed, by the blood of Christ. Now call upon the name of the Lord and turn from your sin, and He will forgive your sins. Well, Solomon concludes his seventh petition with a plea in verse 53. Solomon's prayer closes by pleading the covenant promises of God. Verse 53, For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of the land of Egypt, O Lord God. For Solomon, the hope of his prayers being answered in the affirmative rests entirely in the God of the covenant because the God of the covenant hears and forgives sinners. Take the time, beloved, to remind yourself that prayer ought not to be a hard conversation because the one you speak to already accepts you in Christ. Learn from our four Father Solomon, and that this pattern is best shown by our Lord. In the Lord's Prayer, he offers praises to God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He praises the Lord and then offers six petitions to the Lord. And Solomon approaches God in the right way, recognizing his sin and the need for the altar and the need for intercession. And I implore you that you would also see your need, that you would also realize that the only way you can come to God in prayer is through a mediator. Now Solomon came through the intercession of the Levitical priesthood. You and I come through the intercession of 
the perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Solomon opens his prayer, praising the God of the covenant. When you come to God, begin. It is appropriate to come with supplications and petitions, but don't forget or neglect the praise of God for who he is and what he's done. From praise, Solomon moves to petitions because he knows that the God of the covenant is a God who loves to bless his people. And this most generous God hears the just cause. He hears you amidst distress and calamity. He hears you in the midst of economic turmoil. He hears you in the midst of every distress. And what's more, our faithful high priest knows what it's like to be a foreigner, a stranger in a strange land. He left the courts of heaven for the dredges of life here on earth. He not only hears, he understands. And not only understands, but he offers you a way to make sense of all of this life. The God of the covenant is the God who hears and forgives sinners. And make no mistake, if you find yourself like our forefathers in exile, feeling far from God, wondering if you were ever actually a Christian, wondering maybe if it was all a farce and you never actually knew the Lord. Well, that describes you today and you find yourself wondering, does God still forgive and love sinners? Even more personally, does God still hear and love you? Hear God's word as he responds to Solomon in chapter 9, verse 3. And the Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Call upon his name and he will by no means cast you out. Amen. Let us pray. O good and gracious God, we pray for your blessing upon the the exposition of your word. O Lord, that you would hear our prayers, and may you remind us that our confidence is not in how perfect or weak our prayers are, not in what we pray or how we pray, but that we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you will hear us, for you love us in your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.